was a couple nights ago, but, you know, what's a couple nights among friends? The sky is still dark, uh, depending on where you are. It might be white, full of snow, or sleet, or ice, uh, or maybe you have some sunshine. I don't know. Uh, you can't see the moon, but it's up there. Uh, I've got some freezing rain and sleet going on out there, uh, but that's, you know, a good day to, to stay inside and be cozy, uh, maybe have a cup of tea and a, a blanket and, uh, you know, just meditate on the new moon and the coming of spring eventually. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, new, new moon thoughts. So anyway, this new moon, I have some beautiful writing to keep you company. I'm going to read to you from Skin Over Milk by Sara Siddiqui Chonserker, and it's a gorgeous little book, and I hope you'll get uh, get your paws on your own copy after you hear a few stories from it. So uh, let's uh, get right to it. Skin Over Milk The summer of 1990 brought rain and more rain to our little town of Muzaffarnagar. We sisters, 11, 10, and 9 at the time, Heard it through the quiet of the night, drumming on the mango leaves, beating over the asbestos awning, pouring down the tin gutters, not knowing we'd remember that rain for the rest of our lives, or that I, the youngest, would write about it one day. By morning, murky water from the flooded drain across the alley had seeped into our cemented courtyard, slithered under the door sills of the three bedrooms, ours, our brothers, and our parents, lined along to the right of the open space. To the left stood an old mango tree, its roots erupting from the floor in places. Across the courtyard sat the kitchen skirted with a corrugated awning, our grandfather Dada's room, the bathroom, and the bicycle shed with a tin roof. Our nostrils caught the stench of rotting trash and urine from the drain water mingled with the fragrance of jasmine flowers that our mother Ami grew in clay pots lined along the perimeter of the courtyard. We liked to string the flowers sometimes and pin them to our mother's straight black hair. Ami called us, Badki, Manjali, Chutki, come. She said our names in the same order, from oldest to youngest. In fact, our names translated to just that, older one, middle one, younger one not a deeper meaning or significance to them. We assembled in the order of our heights, like the steps of a stairwell. Budki the tallest, as tall as Ami, Manjali shorter by an inch, and I shorter by two inches. On Ami's cue, we knotted our black hair into buns, 
rolled up our salwar cuffs, and followed our short, slim-hipped mother as she marched on with quick steps, silver anklets tinkling on her feet, her linen dupata tied around her narrow waist. Arami was light-skinned, her skin the golden of wheat, but we had inherited some of the dark coloring from our father, Abba. We were brown like the surface of the areca nuts we chopped into pieces for Ami's beetle-leaf treat, the pan, that she chewed at the end of each long, exhausting day. Using a broom made of palm sticks held together with twine, Ami raked out broken bowls, putrefying peels, and spent slippers from the drain, which gurgled with relief as water started trickling down. We grabbed wipers, rubber blades attached to long aluminum rods, and pushed the water out of the courtyard into the brick-lined alley. Dada used to help with the rainwater, but the last two times when he did that, the chill seeped into his bones, bringing along a fevered cold and a hacking cough that lingered for days. His aging body wasn't as strong as it had been before. When we came back inside to our room after draining away the water and drying our feet with towels, Abba was still spurt snoring in our parents' bedroom. We heard our brothers, Asif and Salman, wake up with loud, lazy yawns in their room. They were slightly older than us, aged 13 and 12, and much taller. Their skin was a different brown, the color of the first potatoes of the season. Asif, the eldest, had recently sprouted a thin line of hair on his upper lip. His voice had changed into a hoarse croak that sounded funny to us. Both of the boys bathed and dressed for school in shirts weed-ironed, ties weed-knotted, and shoes weed-polished the night before. Following our morning routine, Butki walked our brother's bicycles out of the tin shed into the courtyard, Manjali dusted the seats with a rag, and I inflated the tires with a pump. Then I raised the rear wheel of one bicycle and pushed the pedals with my arms. We watched the spokes spin into a blur and imagined riding the bicycles to places, real and imaginary, the breeze kissing our cheeks. But we knew we would never get to experience that because Abba kept the bicycle shed locked. Once, when our brothers returned from school, I asked Salman to teach us how to ride the two-wheeler, but he scoffed at the idea. Dressed in their school uniform of white shirts, gray ties, and navy blue trousers, Asif and Salman sat on low stools with woven seats in the kitchen for the breakfast that began with a handful of almonds. Abbas at the nuts were giza, nutrition, for those who studied math and science at school. So Ami soaked them in water overnight to soften them for her sons, the heritors of our parents' adoration. We imagine the nuts crumbling between our incisors, pulverizing between our molars, coating our tongues with pasty sweetness. But under Ami's hawk-like vigilance and the locked food cabinet, we would never get to relish the taste. After the almonds, Ami served paratas, dough discs that she rolled out with great care and pan-fried in spoonfuls of aromatic ghee in steel plates. Then she poured steaming milk into tall tumblers for our brothers, the stream of milk in the air between the pot and the tumblers made our stomachs thunder and our mouths rain. We waited for Asif and Salman to finish their meal. When they were ready, Butki helped button their raincoats over their uniforms. 
Manjali wrapped their book bags in cellophane sheets, and I tied grocery bags around their shoes so they wouldn't get soaked in the rain. After they left, we joined their two low stools to seat the three of us, barely, for breakfast. I sat squished between my sisters, dreaming of a seat of my own some day. Ami heated up stale rotis for us and smeared them with pungent mustard oil as the aroma of ghee lingered in our noses. Then she poured chai made with little milk into our cups with broken handles. We cracked the hard roti between our teeth, moistened the morsels with our saliva, but left untouched the chai, brown like the muddy drain water. I peeked inside Asif's tumbler, still a quarter full after he left in a hurry, and watched a skin form over the milk. Piercings Because it rained most evenings, we couldn't play hopscotch or hide-and-seek or jump rope in the courtyard. Clever Budki suggested another pastime, eavesdropping on our parents' conversation when Abba ate dinner while Ami waved a panka, a handheld fan woven from bamboo strips, to circulate the air around his face. We discussed and identified our grandfather Dada's room as the ideal spot for spying. Dada and his rose-ringed parakeet, Me Too, lived in the room across the courtyard beside the kitchen. Once, we'd heard Ami talking to our nani about how Abba's mother, dead before I was born, had poisoned her son's mind against girl children. Deeming Ami's womb cursed, Abba's mother had advised her son to marry another woman who could give him more sons. Nani said it was sad how women were an enemy of their own kind, and it was good that Abba's mother died before forcing her son into another marriage. Dada was matchstick thin, cotton wool bearded, and bamboo tall the tallest man we'd known, and the kindest. He didn't raise his voice at us, didn't deny our requests that were within his power and means to fulfill. There was nothing in common between him and our burly, angry Abba. He said he'd always wanted a daughter but never had one. At night, when Ami called Abba for his meal, we took our positions in Dada's room, atop the plateau of blankets and quilts stacked against the wall common with the kitchen for everyone to use in winter. We knew we could trust Dada, the keeper of our secrets and warm covers. Through the wall, we heard Ami say, Dada has volunteered to pierce the girl's ears. When talking about us, our parents referred to us as girls, always a collective. Why? Abba said, annoyed. I don't have money to buy silver or gold for your girl's ears. There's not a peso left in my pocket after paying for Asif's and Salman's school fees. Don't you worry, Ami replied, her glass bangles tinkling with the action of waving the fan. I have some money saved from sewing the neighbor's clothes. I'll work more. We can't get the girls married off without getting their ears pierced. Better do it now before the lobes become too hard. Okay, whatever, Abba said in an exasperated voice. Just don't bother me. A man can't even have a meal in peace in this house. With that, he rose and pushed the stool to the wall behind which we were crouched. We shuddered as his anger permeated through the brick and cement to us. The next day, after Abba left for work and our brothers for school, we pressed Dada's feet, massaged his scalp, and cajoled him into piercing our ears. 
We couldn't wait to wear thin gold earrings like Ami, though she had only that one pair, gifted on her wedding by Nani. Dada asked Ami's permission to pierce our ears. She nodded while spooling thread on the bobbin of her sewing machine. Then he asked us to collect the things needed for the ceremony, as he called it, and himself went out to buy something important. We followed his instructions, but Ki asked Ami for her thinnest needle and a spool of black thread. Manjali fetched a candle and a matchbox. I got green peppers from the kitchen, though I couldn't comprehend why Dada needed those for the piercing. Dada returned with a paper bag clutched in his hands. He examined and approved the items we arranged on the rickety table beside his narrow bed. He pulled out a lump of beeswax from his sundry box, which he rubbed on the black thread, saying it would make the thread stronger than silver. We believed our grandfather, our fountain of knowledge. Then Dada adjusted his glasses on his nose, threaded the needle with the wax thread, and motioned for Bidki to sit on the plastic stool facing his chair. He pulled up her hair in a high ponytail and gave her a piece of lemon candy from the paper bag. Manjali and I eyed the opaque bag, awaiting our turn to roll the lump of sugar in our mouths. With a ballpoint pen, Dada dotted Bidki's lobes. Then he placed Mitu's metal cage between him and Budki. The curious bird sat on the perch, eyeing us, tilting its head left and right. It was cute, but it pooped all the time. Thankfully, its droppings didn't stink that much. Dada lit a candle with a matchstick and held the needle to the flame. This is for sterilization to kill germs. Otherwise, the ear holes might get infected and swollen with pus, he explained. Then he started narrating a ghost story from his endless repository of tales. A new one gushed out effortlessly, like the juice from the tip of a ripe mango. Between narrating the lines of the story, he asked Budki to feed me too a green pepper. As Budki held the pepper to the bird's curved beak and we waited for the story to climax, for the evil spirit to be locked in a bottle by the haunted woman as it did in most of his stories, Dada stretched my sister's lobe and inserted the needle into the marked dot. Ah! Budki cried. Our lips trembled and our eyes moistened. Bahadur Ludki, brave girl. Dada roared a full-throated laugh that drowned Budki's pain in our anxiety. He cut the thread, tied its ends while blowing on Budki's reddened ear, and gave her another piece of candy. He repeated the process for her other lobe, then for Manjali and I. Ami continued sewing in our parents' room. Perhaps she didn't hear our cries and the whir of her sewing machine. The parakeet rewarded our bravery by saying its name, Me too, me too, again and again. Despite Dada's persistent training, it hadn't picked up another word. Beva kuftota, foolish parakeet. Dada tapped the birdcage and laughed. We chortled too. Then, as we sucked on the lemon candy, Dada announced that on his next pension day, he wouldn't buy sweet ladoos or plastic bangles or rubber dolls for us. Instead, he'd save the money to buy us silver earrings. Not fair, we said. We waited for small treats our grandfather brought us once a month on his pension day. But then we smiled at the thought of silver glinting in our ears. Many times during the day, we looked at our faces in the mirror, the swollen red lobes, the black thread running through them. 
but Key said she wanted thin hoops that'd dangle when she walked. Manjali wanted studs that'd sparkle in the sun. I wanted small rings with flowers carved on them like Amis. We asked each other if our piercings hurt. None of us admitted the pain. At night, my false bravado collapsed. Outside, the clouds that had been circling the sky all day burst open, as did my pain, our pain, which I could feel on the throbbing of my ear and the shaking of my sister's bodies as they sobbed into the sheets of our slim bed. The clouds rumbled as they emptied their moisture with a plunk, plunk, plunk on the tin shed, but we let ours flow in silence. Nights of Silence After downpour one evening, the night sky cleared up. It looked like a black dupata studded with sequins of stars and a milk moon. The subdued fragrance of jasmine flowers planted by Ami in clay pots mitigated the stench wafting in from the drain outside. We pulled a charpoy into the cart courtyard and sat on it, trying to make up stories now that Dada wasn't there to narrate them for us. Lying sick in his bed, he'd promised he'd be a star watching over us always. We looked above at the sky, but couldn't tell which star was Dada. We stopped talking when Ami walked toward us, carrying the pandan, a metal container holding the ingredients needed to assemble a pan, an edible preparation made using beta leaves and areca nuts. We scooted over to make room for her. She sat on the charpoy, her blue-veined feet resting on the ground. Butki, make a pan for me, she said, placing the container on the charpoy. Though all of us helped Ami in the kitchen with chopping the vegetables and grinding the spices on the stone, Ami trusted Butki the most with food. Butki enjoyed spending time in the kitchen, sautéing the onions or stirring the salon so it didn't stick to the bottom of the pot. Manjali was an expert at sewing buttons and hooks, hemming the cuffs and sleeves of the outfits Ami sewed for other women. She had a neat, deft way with the needle. I helped Ami with everything, but didn't have a distinguished skill, something I was best at. Now, after Dada died, my sister said I was good at making up stories and narrating them. Though Ami had asked Butki to prepare the pan, Manjali and I wanted a part in it, too. Butki laid a heart-shaped beetle leaf on her palm, dipped oar-like spoons into the little bowls in the pandan, and applied a coating of slaked lime paste to one half. Manjali painted the other half across the leaf's midrib with red katechu paste. I placed pieces of areca nut on the leaf. Ami plunged a hand into the neckline of her kameez, pulled out a pouch of tobacco, and sprinkled some on the leaf. Then she folded the pan into the size of a pebble and slid it inside her mouth. Our mother lay back on the charpoy, forearms crossed over her eyes. Slim as she was, she didn't need much space, and we squeezed along to the edges to make room for her. Settled in a restful position, she asked, What kahanis were you girls telling? Chutki is best at telling kahanis on me, Budki said. She has learned well from Dada. Oh, really? Ami propped her head on her elbow. She asked me to narrate a story, but I giggled and blushed at the sudden attention. 
Let me try telling one Kahani then, Ami said. Yes, yes, Ami. We let out a burst of joy and clapped our hands in anticipation. We heard a ba clear his throat twice, a sign for us to be quiet and not disturb our brothers in their studies. Sometimes when we talked excitedly or played akud-bakud in our room, Abba stormed in and hung his belt on the wall peg as a warning, but he had never struck us. There was also this fact we knew about our brothers that Abba didn't. They spent more time leafing through comic books, drawing funny figures, and flying paper airplanes than they did studying. Ami began the story of an infant girl born in winter, who cried all night and all day despite being dressed in warm cotton wool layers and swaddled in flannel blankets. Hours of rocking and multiple attempts of offering her the breast by the mother did not calm the infant. The father berated the mother for giving birth to a kambucked baby. After this, Ami paused as if to decide what happened next or to change her story. We waited. One night, the baby cried and cried without a pause, and the father ordered the mother to visit the midwife the next morning for some oleander poison. Her lips quivered to silence the infant. Did she? I asked, hoping the baby girl was safe. The mother undressed the baby girl down to her skin, took her out into the cold night, and whispered something in her ear. The baby stopped crying at night. Not a peep. Only during the day when the father was out at the fields did she let her voice out of her body. What did the mother tell the baby, I asked. Ami answered in a faint snore. The pawn, a little bulge under her cheek, releasing tobacco juices into her throat, had lulled her to sleep. I fetched a pillow and placed it under her head. Manjali turned the lone light bulb off, and we massaged Ami's legs and feet. She moaned as her limbs released some of their weariness. Green-gray frogs croaked and hopped out from their hiding spots as if they knew they were safe with us. Our brothers liked to chase the poor creatures, crush them with bricks, and then dry their bodies to crisps in the sun. We hated their game of torture and death. We looked up at the sky. This time, one star directly above us shone unmistakably brighter than the others. Dada, we whispered. Fireflies danced around the jasmine pots. Mangoes hung like silver balls on the tree. Ami's skin felt warm and soft under our fingers. We could have sat in the courtyard all night, but a sheet of gray clouds soon shrouded the sky. The rain came in intermittent drops, a fat one landing on Ami's cheek. She opened her eyes and continued with the story as if she hadn't dozed off in the middle of it. No girl should ever be birthed in winter. Then she ran a palm over our heads. But a woman should have daughters to make her a pawn and massage her legs. She rose from the charpoy, a hand pressed to her kneecap, her face contorting with pain. I placed slippers on her feet and she shuffled inside. We pulled the cot under the shed and went inside, too. We lay along the width of our bed, the only arrangement that worked to fit the three of us on the narrow frame. And, like every night, we heard Ami's glass bangles and Abba's grunts through the thin wall separating our room from theirs. Never a sound from Ami. And I thought of the girl, born in winter, threatened into nights of silence. 
Leaving home. Ami woke us up late in the morning. The house lay very quiet. No pitter-patter of raindrops, no rumbling of clouds, no wind slamming the doors. Abba had left for work and our brothers for school. Sunlight from the window formed a golden pool at our feet. Our clothes were stained golden, too, by the turmeric paste Ami applied to our belt injuries and we to hers last night. The smell of burnt milk hung in the air. Ami must have been really distracted to let the milk boil over. Frugal as she was, she wouldn't waste a drop otherwise. The night had healed us. Our wounds didn't sting anymore. Ami's face wasn't paper pale like the day before when she'd fainted. Her pupils shone, but underneath the sunlight dancing in her eyes lurked something different, something steely. She asked us to call her mother, our nani, who had had a phone installed at her place recently. Nani wrote about it in a letter that Asif had read out loud. Our grandmother could read and write. Ami told us she had attended night school after her husband, the grandfather we never met, passed away. I dialed Nani's number that Salman had written in green ink on the first page of the phone book. She answered on the first ring, her voice soothing like the first sip of water at the break of a fast during Ramadan. Because long-distance calls were expensive, Ami kept the conversation brief and urged Nani to visit soon without telling her about the last night. Then she asked us to collect all our clothes and arrange them in bundles. Ami, are we going somewhere? Budki asked. Ami didn't reply. We made three heaps of our faded clothes, mine the most worn out, because they passed from Budki to Manjali to me, and tied each one up separately in old dupatas with frayed edges. Nani arrived the following day. A cabbage green chata wrapped around her head and torso, a bag of apples balanced in the crook of her left elbow, a sarahi, earthen pot of water, in her right hand. Our grandmother had the same face as Ami, the high forehead, the saucer eyes, the sharp nose, the elegant bone structure, but her cheeks were full and rosy, while Ami's were sunken and sallow. Ami rushed into her mother's arms and wept inconsolably, hiccuping like a child. "'Take my daughters with you, Ma,' Ami said, wiping her nose on her sleeve. I can't shield them. I failed. She started crying again. We told our grandmother about Abba's explosive rage last night, the belt lashes, Ami's illness, and Dr. Nee's words. She puckered her mouth with worry, pulled out a tasbih from her pocket, and thumbed the white beads. Ya Allah, another baby, she said after completing a round of quick prayers. The creases around her eyes became visible. Yes, due in winter. The potion I use failed this time, Ami said. And then with a confidence that belied her trembling voice, but I'll take care of it with Dr. Nee's help. Nani kissed Ami's forehead. Allah God have mercy. Why am I not strong like you, Ma? Why can't I whisper something into my daughter's ears to protect them? like you did that winter night when I was a baby. It was Allah who spoke to you that winter. I was his voice. As for my strength, it came after your Abba died. You were already married, but I had to fend for your two younger sisters. Before I was a paper kite, my string in your Abba's hands.
after I became a bird, hopping about, flying, gathering food to feed my daughters. How are my Safina and Zoya? Ami asked with a cheer to her voice as she spoke her sister's names. Oh, they're well. Still refuse to marry, and I don't force them. They're learning to read and write from a social worker lady who comes home to teach them. Too embarrassed to take night classes, those girls. We want to read and write too, Nani, I squealed, can we? Inshallah, Nani said, if Allah wills it. The room on my terrace is occupied by pigeons right now. I'll ask Safina and Zoya to clean it up for you all. You can sleep there. But Ma, will you have enough to feed my girls? Ami asked, though they eat like sparrows, really. Your father's little property provides enough to get by. There's that small mango orchard that yields income in the summer. Plus, the social worker lady promised to register me for a welfare scheme to start some kind of home business. Pickles, poppards, candles. We'll make poppards with you, Nani, Burki said, and we wrapped our arms around our grandmother's girth, her hips and waist cushiony, at least two times as wide as our mother's. Ami, you come with us too, I said. Please. Who will cook for your brothers in a ba, then, she said looking at a spot beyond my shoulder, a tremor creeping into her voice. I have my own kismet. You all, go, make your lives better. And just like that, after sobbing Huda Hafiz into Ami's cotton kameez, we stepped out of the house, open-toed plastic sandals strapped to our feet, bundles of clothes wrapped in dupatas balanced on our heads, leaving behind a life that could have become only more painful. Of this we were certain a truth that was unwise to ignore, even at that age. Before turning the bend at the end of our alley, I paused and looked back. Ami stood with her dupata held to her mouth, leaning against the swollen door, washed almost naked of the blue paint, patched in places with aluminum scraps. The mango tree peeked over the wall, looking mournful, the fruits and leaves static. Nani urged us to walk faster or we'd miss the train to her town. We waved to Ami. She raised a hand slowly, as if it weighed at least five kilograms. Manjali swiveled around, but our grandmother held her arm. We walked on. Above us, the sky stretched clear and wide. Would our sky remember us, or would it just not care, chameleon that it was, changing colors and moods many times a day? Would Nani's sky be ink blue or iron gray? smattered with pebbly clouds or covered with puffy cotton ball ones? Would Dada looking down from the strip of sky above our courtyard worry about not finding us here? Would he ask Allah's angels far stay about us? Would they help him locate us like they came to the aid of the prophets in Quran? A rainbow arched in the sky. That was impossible on such a dry day. I looked again, puzzled, and it had vanished. My mind was already inventing colors, painting a new sky for us. It's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Come on in. Good to see you again. Oh, it's good to see you, too. 
Uh, how have things been? Oh, you know, uh, frankly, Mr. Baron, I really feel like hibernating. Um, you know, it's the new moon, um, and I just feel like it's, it's a time to be burrowed underneath, you know, kind of a dreamy space. Um, so that's really, I just, I just feel like lighting some candles and, and, uh, and snuggling under some blankets and then, um, and then blowing the candles out and going to sleep. That's, that's kind of what I feel like doing. Oh, yeah, I, I hear you, Miss Mousy. Uh, I'm kind of in a, I'm kind of in a, na- a napping sort of bear mood as well. Yeah, well, you know, bears hibernate. Um, I mean, most bears. Uh, so, yeah, it, m- it makes sense that you would like naps, Mr. Bear. Yeah, na- naps are right up there with honey. Uh, definitely. Naps and honey. Yeah, those are, those are pretty high on my list, too. Um, I feel like I'm not very good company, uh, today, Mr. Bear, but I can offer you, um, a little cup of cocoa. Oh, I love cocoa. Thanks, Miss Mousy. Yeah, this, um, uh, this one has, um, I just heated up a little oat milk, um, but, you know, you can have, if someone wants to make this at home, they can, you know, make it with any milk that they like. Um, but I, I put in, uh, a tablespoon of rose petals and uh, a good, good hearty shake of cinnamon. Maybe you know, maybe a few shakes, and uh, a decent shake or two of uh, nutmeg, and then a whole lot of black pepper, and then a teaspoon of cocoa, and and just stirred, whisk that all up, and heated it up, and um, I'm I'm finding it very, very lovely and and relaxing. Uh, thanks, Miss Mousy. That sounds sounds great. Um, did you uh strain the rose petals out? Actually, Mister Bear, no. I I left them in because I don't mind nibbling on them. Um, I'm a mouse and um I like to nibble, and uh the rose petals get soft and and a little little chewy, little like a little softness. I don't know. I like it. Um, but I I realize that's a controversial opinion. Um, you know, a lot of people do not like anything uh in in their drink that they you know have to chew um they really you know in that case you can just strain it out oh yeah i think i think i'm more more that kind of bear miss mousy i like my rose puddles on the side that's fine mr bear i'll strain i'll strain it for you um yeah like like i say it's uh it's really um a matter of personal preference and some people feel very strongly about you know not having uh uh, any anything floating in in their tea or cocoa, um, but I don't really mind it most of the time. So that's um that's all I have to say about it, Mister Bear. Oh, that that's okay, Miss Mousy. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's much more to be said. I mean, people can, you know, have have rose petals in in their cocoa or not. Exactly. Well, here you go, Mister Bear. Oh, thanks, Miss Mousy. And uh, I'd like to remind your listeners, um, you know, that I'm just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, uh, so they should always do their own research. Um, But uh, before you go, Mr. Bear, I mean, not to rush you off, have your cocoa, enjoy it, but uh, uh, let's uh, let's do an oracle. Maybe that'll, that'll pick things up around here. Oh, sure. Well, I always, always love your oracles, Miss Mousy. 
uh, uh, what, what book is it from again? Well, you know, I like to use Kate Greenaway's Language of Flowers uh, for my oracle. Um, so I'm just going to paw through and point down. And the oracle is Spearmint, Warmth of Sentiment. Oh, that, that sounds like an, a nice oracle. Yeah, I like spearmint. Um, I like it better than peppermint, actually. Uh, it's very nice in a lot of tea blends. Um, and warmth of sentiment. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice thought. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to call this uh, warmth of sentiment cocoa, even though there's no spearmint in it. Um, uh, sure, Mr. Bear. We can call it warmth of sentiment cocoa. And... On that note, uh, I'm going to get back to my nap, and um, and you should probably get back and finish the show. Oh yeah, that that's a good idea. Uh, thanks, Miss Mousie. Uh, it's good to see you. Yeah, you too, Mr. Bear. I'll see you on the full moon. I think things will be a little brighter then. <laughs> yeah, pun intended. Uh, okay, see you then, Miss Mousie. Bye. Bye, Mr. Bear. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo, tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to Violet Hour Moon at gmail dot com. And that's the show, folks. I hope you've enjoyed the work of Sarah Siddiqui Chansarker. Uh, her book Skin Over Milk is available at her website and also on Amazon. And her website is sarspunyfingers dot com. That's S A R A S. P-U-N-Y-F-I-N-G-E-R-S dot com. And you can find out more about her and her writing and other books uh, on online. She has lots more beautiful writing, so uh, do check that out. And uh, thank you so much for joining me in the Violet Hour. I will leave you with a parting gift of the Oracle. Um, the oracle is from Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth. I will paw through, point down, and read the oracle. The last colors slowly faded from the western sky, and as they did, one by one, the instruments stopped until only the bass fiddles, in their somber slow movement, were left to play the night and a single set of silver bells brightened the constellations. I'll read that one more time. The last colors slowly faded from the western sky, and as they did, one by one, the instruments stopped, until only the bass fiddles, in their somber slow movement, were left to play the night, and a single set of silver bells brightened the constellations. Well, uh, that sounds like a beautiful oracle, uh, I think, but uh, interpret it as you will. And uh, until the next time, take care and be kind to each other. 
theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.